This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the 2008 Paris Hilton vehicle, The Hottie and the Naughty. But we decided as long as we're going to talk about beauty standards, we'd watch the 1946 film, La Belle et la Bette, a.k.a. Beauty and the Beast, instead. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. My name is Adam Kobeski, and I am your second co-host, and uh, we have with us our esteemed guest and my wife, Brianne Kobeski. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So, Charlie. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Oh, okay. What's your favorite fairy tale movie? <laughs> Almost as if you had that one in the chamber ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as if I stole it from you. <laughs> You might hate me for this one because it's a movie we brought up many times, but in the recommendation section. So I think this doesn't count. (laughs) No, not Blade Runner. I I guess we would have to talk a little bit about what counts as a fairy tale, but I think this one is very specifically in that genre. And I'm going to say Labyrinth, the Jennifer Connelly, David Bowie movie. I think Uh, it very squarely falls in that in that range with all the all the Jim Henson Muppet workshop stuff going on and the, the fantasy stylings of it. Yeah, that definitely came up in our pre-roll discussions about what actually constitutes a fairy tale movie. Does it have to be a movie based on a fairy tale? Does it just have to have some of that feel to it? So Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I mean, considering that I, I chose one that I don't think is based on a previous story, I'm going to say that mine fits fine, and then I'll uh, debate yours after the fact. <laughs> well, I think the key is, are we talking about a fairy tale movie? Or are we talking about a movie based on a fairy tale? Because I think if you say fairy tale movie, then you can talk about there's a lot of things that can become fairy tale movies like Labyrinth or Blade Runner or, or, you know, something even like, you know, My Neighbor Totoro can be considered a fairy tale movie, but a movie based on a fairy tale is a much different kind of concept because then you get into the idea of, well, what is a fairy tale? Yeah. And how loosely can you be based on it? Yeah. I mean, I think my problem was that I was trying to think of movies, and one of the ones that came to my mind was Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. And I'm like, well, if if that's what I'm willing to come up with right off the bat, then uh, I've got to broaden this a little bit to make it easier for myself. (laughs) So funny thing, um, I went and I looked to see what constituted a movie based on a fairy tale. Like, what are some of the best movies out there that are based on fairy tales? And they got a list of the top 30 movies based on fairy tales. And I think like number 10 or something like that was Hansel and Gretel, Wish Hunter. No. Okay. Well, so I was like, well, it count. (laughs) And the first one. This is the worst BuzzFeed article yet. The very first one that the very first one listed was La Belle et la Bette. Oh, okay. Well, I know. I think it was either a remake or something along those lines, but. um, Yeah, it was the 2014 version. Right, but it was still the French version was the number one on With, the uh, on the list. Yes, I do. I think. Well, anyway, Brianne, you have a wide berth here. What's your pick? I think I'm going to go with a movie that's based on a fairy tale because the first thing I thought of was Labyrinth as well. But I really, really liked the movie Ever After with Drew Barrymore. That's based on the Cinderella story. Oh yeah, that definitely um, counts. So I know a lot of people that movie doesn't come in high regards, but I watched that movie until the VHS <sighs> broke. So when I was a kid, I tape snapped like, yeah, or crinkled or did something where it wasn't playable anymore. I, I watched that movie to the ground for me at the time it came out was the perfect movie about a fairy tale. 
So I realize we're all trying to dance around the obvious correct answer, which is the Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that to me. But, and I was like, ah, you came, to, you came to it before I did. So, but uh, since everyone already knows that's the that's the answer, we'll just go with the second place. I considered Snowpiercer for a while. All right, you're going to have to justify that one because is that based on something that I'm not thinking of, or you just in the sort of gen- generic fairy tale story? Yeah, you know, I guess it's, yeah. It's a, it's about a bunch of peasants, and they <laughs> get helped by a magical person to make it to a better life. And then there's a moral at the end about how there's no such thing as a better life, and we're all going to die, which is very Brothers Grimm-esque. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. Global warming does kind of feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think my choice is probably the 1934 movie Babes in Toyland. Oh, I haven't seen that one. The- the Laurel and Hardy version, not the not the <laughs> late updated. Disney one yeah, they did later. Yeah, <laughs> so I like that movie a lot. Yeah, what is it you liked about that movie? The story and the characters, <laughs> okay, and the way it's shot. <laughs> and there's some nice music. <laughs> Things that this movie that we're reviewing today also have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on my oh, transitions. It's a good movie, <laughs> it's a good movie Charlie. <laughs> audience amber it's a good movie <laughs> <laughs> but this week we're reviewing la belle et la bête uh, also known as beauty and the beast the 1946 jean cacteau uh directed film and it's it's his own sort of fairy tale it was a very unique film i hadn't seen this one before um adam had you seen this before nope and brianne of course you had not seen it before being our guest uh why this particular film yeah why Well, Adam and I have been kind of on a, I should say Adam has been on a Criterion movie kick. And so when we were looking. This is your fault, by the way, Charlie. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It was all like, hey, you want to do Solaris? Okay. Well, let me get a copy of Solaris. That's got cool stuff. Oh, wow. This does have cool stuff. (laughs) Oh, there's a sale coming up. Oh, oh, oh. And now I'm done forever. (laughs) Yeah. The sale comes out and every day. So I went shopping. (laughs) (laughs) so we were looking through the criterion movies uh for the sale and i saw this film in there and i well a i hadn't seen it but i also kind of have this strange fascination with seeing movies or reading stories that happened before the big pop culture version of whatever movie that was so for example this one being before like the disney's beauty and the beast i wanted to see what it was like pre went before Disney got their hands on it and kind of have a little place in my heart for Beauty and the Beast because that was one of um I was actually in that show recently the um, Disney version the Disney version the musical version on stage uh several months ago so it kind of just tied the past year in a nice little bow um and so I was curious I wanted to see and I thought it'd be a great movie to share with uh, you guys yeah, and that stage production is very similar to the Disney movie. Um, but if you think about it, the Disney movie itself is a, you know, 70-minute movie, 60, you know, just a little over an hour. And the stage production now is almost three hours. So you can imagine oh, wow. there's a lot more added to the stage production, a lot of dancing and a lot of singing, but still a whole lot of fun with the iconic characters from the Disney's Beauty and the Beast. So it sounds like you expected it to be something different. Like, what did you expect to be seeing in this version for me i definitely expected to see something more classic some i did not expect to see the talking candlesticks and the dancing plates and the all of those things i wanted to see what was considered enchanting and how were they able to to be able to show that in the 40s um 
And so I wanted to see, especially since Beauty and the Beast is a French story, I wanted to also see the story told from a French point of view as well. How about you, Adam? Uh, were you familiar at all with this version of the film? Did you know what you were getting into when you came into it? I knew of the film. I know that this is one of the the the, the French film classics. Like this is in the canon for French films, and I was aware that a lot of like the not necessarily specific images, but the sort of feel of the imagery gets um, taken up by later films and television series and stuff like that. So I was sort of aware of it from that point of view. But beyond that, um, yeah, not really. I knew it wasn't the same storyline as the Disney movie. You know, like there's no Gaston in the Cocteau version. But beyond that, I didn't really know what fully to expect. You've been watching a lot of like classic French film recently, too. I have, which is kind of weird. I, <laughs> I didn't know if that was deliberate have, or not. Well, no, it's just like. It just happens. It's like because Alphaville, I was interested in because of the science fiction aspect, um, the Jacques Tati films that I watched that we will get to some of those later, I'm sure, in the run of the podcast. Um, I was interested in because they were a big influence on Mr. Bean, and I really like Mr. Bean. And yeah, this movie was more Brienne's choice, so I obviously wasn't, well, all right, perhaps it's not obvious, but I wasn't opposed to this either. So yeah, it just... Uh, since it's happened then that we keep bringing them up on the podcast like i've also watched a whole bunch of like japanese stuff that hasn't come up yet so oh, well, yeah I that's guess true yeah. Up, but yeah like we didn't we didn't do any of the lone wolf and cubs or the zadarichi films or seven samurai i just watched so <laughs> zadarichi would be a good one for you guys to do by the way so i'm gonna give you a little synopsis it shouldn't be it shouldn't be anything terribly new to anyone who is familiar with the disney versions of the film uh Belle, played by Josette Day, lives with her father and adult siblings. After her father's merchant ships are lost at sea, he becomes lost in the woods and chances upon a grand, mysterious castle. He picks a rose from the garden for his daughter and is accosted by a hideous beast, played by Jean Marais, who threatens the man's life unless he sends one of his daughters to live there. Belle takes his place and lives with the beast, learning to appreciate and even love him. Belle's human suitor, also Jean Marais, attempts to infiltrate the beast's estate and steal his treasure. So story-wise, it's very similar to the Disney animated version and the more recent 2017 Disney live-action version of this well, film. But sort of. Uh, yeah, mean, in, in, the, the, in the broad beats, I guess. Yeah, in that it's the same the as the original fairy tale. Quite different. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed that this seemed to be a lot closer to the original fairy tale than that, like, Belle has, like, brothers and sisters and the whole merchant thing, right? Like, whereas in the Disney version, like, her father's an inventor or something like that. Yeah. And obviously there's the subplot about, you know, killing the beast and that stuff that's in here, but not really. Not really. No. Yeah, in this yeah. one, they're not really killing the beast. So, like, to me, the, the Disney version feels like a Disney-fied version of a fairy tale, right? Where they've changed a bunch of stuff around. Whereas the, the Cocteau version feels a lot close, at least based on, you know, what I read about the original fairy tale and what I know, right? This, this version is actually a lot closer to the original fairy tale than the Disney version is. Brianne, are there any striking differences you noticed between this and, say, the stage version or uh, any of the other Disney versions? Um, I'd say a lot of the same stuff that we've already talked about, um, because the stage version is very similar to the Disney version. All of the characters are basically exactly the same. Most of those other productions have a lot of moving, like I said, a lot of moving parts and people and characters where this one is, I thought really interesting where it was very simplistic in the number of people that were in this film. 
that there were more people in Belle's family than there were in the castle. That's true. There was actually one less actor in this movie than I thought there was at the end right. of it. <laughs> yeah, we had that conversation too. Um, like I, just to jump ahead, I had worked out that that was the same guy because something about the the eyes, like this oh, facial yeah. structure around there yeah. made me go, I wonder. But then, and like I said, we'll get to this, but you know, then they don't, they didn't use that double casting in it all the way I thought they were going to. No, so, not at all. Yeah. Teaser for later on. <laughs> <laughs> the The Disney movie is also much faster paced. Um, I felt like this was more dramatic where, and it wasn't as lively and fun as the Disney version, but I thought still beautifully done as both of them are. Yeah. I spent the first like 15, 20 minutes wondering when they were going to get to the castle. When are they going to get to the fireworks factory? I mean, and I didn't dislike any of that exposition. I was just, yeah, I was used to the Disney version where I thought that we were going to get there a little faster. <laughs> right, because in the Disney version, she sings her song and the town hates her, which in this point, you don't ever even see the town. It's just the family. Right. And then he goes off to his inventor's convention and and that's it. You know, and then they're in the castle. So, yeah, this one took a little bit more time and she almost was treated like Cinderella, I felt, um, where she yeah. was the one that was scrubbing the floors. She had two, you know, internally ugly sisters and, you know, they're treating her like horribly. And so at first I was like, are we watching? Are we sure this is actually Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> Which I thought was interesting because, you know, she has siblings and family. It's just added a different element to the movie than her being an only child with a father. That's just crazy. Yeah, I thought the same thing at the beginning of the movie was that I think that's where it deviated immediately was like, oh, what are all these characters doing here? So there's, what did you think of the family scenes in general? Is that something you enjoyed? Like all of the exposition at the start and the interaction between the family members? I I actually think I kind of liked it. Um, I think it gave a good background to how Belle was so different than everybody else. Who was your favorite? Was um, it Ludovic? Because it's totally Ludovic. It's totally Ludovic. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I had to chuckle at the beginning. I didn't know where they were going with this whole part. Um, but the beginning when they get into the the carriages and he's like yelling at them. At first, I didn't understand that he was the brother. I just thought he was some random boy in the town that was just being a jerk. It made more sense when I found out he was their brother. But then that they were getting into the carriages and they were literally drunk drivers <laughs> driving them to this concert. And him running after them, screaming at them basically mocking them and making fun of them all the way as they're leaving. Um, I thought I thought that dynamic, that whole beginning part, told you exactly what kind of family this was. You didn't even know Belle yet. But then when you saw Belle, it was such a striking contrast. And then you understood why Belle was beautiful on the inside. I mean, I think they tried to play her up that she wasn't as beautiful as the other ones, which, of course, she absolutely was. But there was such a strong contrast that I thought it worked really well. The opening of the film... For the credits is actually a chalkboard and the names of the actors are being written on the chalkboard and then erased and then new names are being put on the chalkboard. And some drawn uh, illustrations on the some, chalkboard. Yeah, some drawn illustrations too. And that transition... Not drawn illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> and that transitions into a text scroll describing, uh, I guess from the director... It's signed. No, before as the... that, you get the clapperboard, which I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We get the clapperboard, like saying like, that we're starting the movie, one. the first scene. <laughs> yeah. Scene one, take one. La belle la bête. <laughs> and then we get the, so we get a text scroll actually signed from the director that says, 
Children believe what we tell them. They have complete faith in us. They believe that a rose plucked from a garden can plunge a family into conflict. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he slays a victim, and that this will cause him shame when a young maiden takes up residence in his home. They believe a thousand other simple things. I ask of you a little of this childlike sympathy, and, to bring us luck, let me speak four truly magic words. Childhood's open sesame. Once upon a time. I also like how you can just read this like, Hey, it's a fairy tale! You don't have to make sense! (laughs) (laughs) Basically, right, that's exactly what they're saying. And I think it helped the movie a lot. Suspend your disbelief, which I found interesting. It's like, it's like it almost, they didn't trust the audience to enjoy the film for what it was. It's like he had to give this caveat of, you know, well, if you don't like it, it's because of this or something along those lines, right? Like, well, just let it, let's play it out. Give it a chance. It helped me a lot because there were certain points in the film and Cara was watching, she was like half watching. So she didn't see that little opening bit. And we got to scenes like where the beast threatens the father and says, you know, I'm going to kill you because you stole the rose. And Cara's like, why doesn't he just run away? Why does he have to bring back one of his daughters? Why doesn't he just leave and never come back? And I think it helps to have the mindset that, well, it's a fairy tale, right? It's the sort of thing that happened in fairy tales and that you don't necessarily need the tons of explanation behind it to believe that it's true. And that it exactly happened in the fairy tale. Right. Yes. When I also, it's funny because you read it now and I didn't even catch the whole thing about the hands of the smoking, like the beast smoking every time he killed a yeah. victim. When you just read it, I went, oh, that makes so much more sense. That's why he was on fire. Like, yeah. Because <laughs> I think it would smoke. Well, and I'm sure when, you know, we're going to talk about the beast a little later, but, um, you know, it smokes even when he would kill his like for dinner. Oh, but, I see. Okay. Because I was like, does he going around killing people in the countryside? Is that what we're meant to believe? <laughs> I just figured it was the, the deer and stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting thinking now, like the whole, the clapper part of it or the reading of the script beforehand kind of gave it a theatrical feel to it, like a stage feel almost. Yeah, this movie's really stagey and the way it's like framed and stuff, isn't it? And I'm wondering if that's not where it started. Like the whole thing is supposed to be like it's being told as a story, not that it's actually happening. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like that we are supposed to see these as actors acting out a story, not this is Belle and the Beast and and whatnot, that they're telling the story just like he's telling us the story at the beginning about suspending your disbelief. Cocteau had a long history in in theater and, you know, as a writer as well, so... I don't think it would be too surprising if there's just like, yeah, I'm going to make this movie much like I would make some of those other things. But additionally, you know. Yeah, it can use a lot of like uh, movie tricks to help with some of the things like the when he carries when the beast carries Belle across the threshold and her dress changes from a simple dress to a very elaborate dress and things like that. Or, you know, scenes of like all these human arms holding cal- candelabras in the beast's castle. I mean, you could do that on stage play, but your actors would kill you. Yeah, they would not be thrilled about that. I tell you from being an actor that had to hold a position like that for the three-fourths of an entire show. Yeah, as a gargoyle in Hunchback of Notre Dame, I literally had to be frozen on stage, crouched for um, 75% of that show and try to actually sing in belts like that too. So your actors would not be happy. Um, But in movie, you can take those breaks. You can have those effects. Um, So yeah, it, it is kind of like a theater production with movie effects. Do you think that was a good way to go with it? Did you enjoy this sort of stagier aspects? I did. I thought it was different, but I still felt it charming. 
like I never thought like it was campy or it was over the top. Mm -hmm. It still had a really nice charm to it that was very pleasing to watch. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I I guess it's a good time to transition into talking a little bit about the production design, especially the castle that the beast lives in and how that differs from the rest of what we see, like specifically back at the, the family's estate. It's a lot of different ways that the castle is presented. There's a lot of the exterior shots would seem very grand in the way that, like, say, the Disney movie might seem. But as soon as you get past the front door, there's this whole, like, foyer section and, like, the dining area where you don't actually get to see a lot of the castle. It's just, like, stark black backgrounds, this complete darkness. And you see things like the stairs, and you can see the table, you can see the fireplace, and, like, all of these little set pieces, like the arms that you were talking about, but... Again, very stagey. Yeah. Yes, yeah. To give the illusion of grandeur, yeah. a lot of times you do that with shadow and darkness to give the thought that there is something more beyond, but then you don't actually have to populate that with set pieces and paintings and staging. It gives the kind of that illusion of being bigger than what we're seeing. You're only supposed to focus on these parts, but there is more. We just, they've chosen not to show it to us. Do you feel it was an attempt to cut down some of the costs of the production or that it was a specific choice beyond that or maybe a little bit of both? It's possible. I mean, this is 1946, right? So this is post-war, like immediately post-war France. Oh, that's that's true. Yeah. I read somewhere that uh, Cocteau really initially wanted to film this in color and then they couldn't afford it because of that. So that's why it's in black and white. And then I think they obviously adjusted things accordingly, right? Because it's... In some ways, it's really difficult to imagine a color version of this film, of this particular film, because of the way they use that shadow and the and the light and the chiaroscuro and stuff. We talked about this a little bit during our Solaris episode, but here was also the case where I don't think they were able to afford the type of film stock they wanted all the time or had to use various types or whatever was available. So you see different versions of film stock being used the entire time and definitely yeah that's another reason they might not have been able to do this in color yeah but i wonder if even in color if they would have still made the choices of the shadows yeah, that's a because great question I, yeah. because i don't i don't know i have a feeling that that was actually a choice to do things that way because it forces you to focus where they want you to focus you're not caught by the elegance behind them or this or that you you don't have much to look at except what's actually going on. So it's kind of like on a stage production where you shine the spotlight exactly where you want people to see and you don't want the rest of it because it becomes diluted almost. So I'm wondering if it wasn't actually a director's choice and would have been that way regardless of having the color or a bigger budget um, because it gave it a much more intimate feel. You know, is the director brilliant because they were working within limitations or, you know, if they had had more options, would this have been a better film or it's hard to say. Or would it just been Waterworld? <laughs> we have as much money as you want. <laughs> but yeah, I love those scenes. Those are some of my favorite scenes. It's basically with the, the shadowy background where you weren't able to see much beyond just the set pieces that they wanted you to see. So I'm glad you were able to point that out, Brianne, because that's I, I think that is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed that part. Yeah, I think for me, uh, if you were going to just sum up the scenes in The Beast's magical realm in one word it's be ethereal mm -hmm. just a very ethereal feel to all that and it's really noticeable when they would cut to the family later on where it was shot in a much different much more matter of fact realistic way so i thought that was interesting that they were able to get that feeling across 
so well. Yeah, the story for the story perspective, I was like, oh, why do they keep going back to the family? But you're right. I think that was really helpful to be able to see that contrast just by having those scenes and being able to visually see the difference between the two places because you can get caught up in it. Yeah, although I actually thought that a lot of the scenes in the castle, like the edits between scenes were very abrupt. Like scenes just suddenly stopped and then just went on to another scene. Like to the point where I was partially wondering if footage had been damaged and lost at some point between 1946 and the restoration. And this was the best they could do. Kind of like a Metropolis thing. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's just Cocteau gets his point across next scene. Right. Right. There are a lot of abruptness. Yeah. And, it's funny. And, and, they're, and they're hard cuts, right? They're not. Some of them are fade to black, but a lot of them are just cut. And then, you know, second of just black, but it's a hard cut. And then next scene up. I was going to say, it was a little jarring every once in a while that you're like, oh, okay, I guess we're on to the new topic. And it would seem like time would pass. And I guess, like you said, we wouldn't need to have all of that filler inside. It's just, okay, I'm done. And now that's part of the story. So good. Now we go on to the next part. At the same time, the Beast does say that the castle exists in a different sort of time and place and that True. night and day don't work in the same way. And I wonder if some of it was that. Well, we can have these abrupt scene transitions and it just gives you a sense that you know, things aren't working. Like maybe you're supposed to be jarred by that. Like that's just very dreamy. And a lot of, a lot of sequences too, that you wonder beyond just the way it's supposed to make you feel like, what's the point of this? Like, what's this, what's the point of, you know, Belle wandering the halls or the beast coming up to her door and all torn up and smoking beyond just giving you the sense of like where you are. And like that, this is a sort of weird, magical place. You definitely got that feeling when she would go through the hallway, like at the very beginning that very ethereal sense with those curtains flowing, those white curtains flowing behind her. And she's not even walking at that point. Right. She's literally being and floating. Because I watched real close. I was like, is she walking? And the dress is just so big that it's not catching up her footprints? Or is she literally floating across that floor? It's almost like she was being pulled by some force towards yeah, I love this that. whole story. Yep. I noticed that. I had the exact same thoughts when I was watching that. I was I was watching for foot movement. And it wasn't, it was just, it was so seamless and so subtle, but yeah. everything in the castle, while there was abrupt moments and changes, but everything was fluid. Even the moving of a hand wasn't like the candelabras was never jerky. Everything was slow and deliberate and magical while creepy at times, <laughs> but still that very ethereal thing when you, again, like we were talking about, when you switch back to the jarringness or the, the craziness of the family where everything is just fast and quick and quick crumbs and everything is, da, 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 you know, like if you were to almost like a snare drum, as, you know, if you were to put music to it where like the castle is a cello, um, it gives you a, con a completely different contrast, which just I thought was just beautifully recognized within that castle scene. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is that you were able to point out something that I guess I unconsciously picked up, but didn't really know why, like the reason that all this stuff feels so ethereal, I think is because of all that fluid motion. And yeah, I actually want to go back and look at a lot of that. You're right. Brand, you had mentioned that this version came off a little bit more scary than other versions of this you'd seen. I think the, the castle itself had some really creepy moments in it. Um, it's, it's unsettling too. So it also gives some, feel to that otherworldly concept that we were talking about with the castle, but like the heads that would move so slowly or that would just randomly be staring and smiling or smirking at whatever was going on. The statues, right. That, you know, on the fireplace that they would just 
And I knew it was going to happen. The minute he sat down on that chair, I looked at those heads back right there and I go, I bet you those suckers are going to move. There's some great pickup on those heads, by the way. They really did look like stone. Yeah. Yeah. Some some of them were actors and some of them weren't. Like there were parts where there were stone figures that weren't actors and I couldn't tell the difference. I almost thought that the end of the film was going to be like the spell broken the way that it was broken in the in the Disney movie. And all of these hands and arms and everything were actually people within the castle. It kind of gave it a creepier feel when I thought of it that way, that these were like maids and people that got absorbed into the castle. Well, maybe there are people that only half use the magic glove. Because that first time she uses the glove, right, she like comes out of the wall. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> was uh, weird. Yeah, that was weird, um, kind of creepy. <laughs> You know, and although I find it funny because, like I said, I actually played the character of a gargoyle who was stone and frozen. And a lot of the really unsettling parts of my character was when just my head would move or just a part (laughs) of my body would move. So it's funny that I'm saying this because I literally just did this last month on stage. And I'm sorry, but a weird hand pouring my drink for me is creeped me out. It's like thing from Adam's family. My first thought wouldn't be to drink whatever the thing poured for me. (laughs) He didn't seem to have a problem with it, though. It's a fairy tale. I, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> There's an aura about the place, which puts him at ease for some reason. But let's talk about the the beasts uh, and the makeup work that was done on this. This version of the beast is kind of cat-like, I think. Uh-huh. But there's a scene where he takes her upstairs after she's fainted, and his face goes up to meet the camera. That was very, I don't know, that was very creepy to me. The makeup itself was, I thought, actually well done um, for the time, especially. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of that flocking on those masks is actually very difficult to do. So I thought it was very, that part of it was very beautifully done with the fur. Five hours a day, apparently, Murray was in the makeup chair getting the beast makeup put on. Oof. And so, I mean, I think it did add a little bit to same to that unsettling, creepy vibe. There, I mean, it had a pretty good movement. I mean... But there was also some camera angles that kind of added the creepiness, but also some of the... So it wasn't only the makeup that created that creepiness factor for the Beast, because there was also some creepy lines that he had as well, and the way he delivered them, <laughs> maybe paired with the makeup. And the one that comes to my mind is that they were sitting there at dinner, and he asks her, will you allow me to watch you eat? <laughs> yeah, that was... a. Uh, I was just thinking, like, and, okay, I don't want anyone asking me if I'm going to allow them to watch me to eat. It's just creepy alone. Add on top of that the creepy cat-like makeup. and That's not a good way to get that second date. Just, can mm. I watch you eat? I'm not hungry, but you go ahead. I like to watch. <laughs> and then to jump straight into marrying me. One of the things the Beast is trying to get across that is that he's willing to do whatever she wants. And that he has this is a guy with real low self-esteem, as you can imagine. Like, to that point... We've seen him be really intimidating to the father, but once Belle's actually there, he's going to do anything he can for her. And I think I think if you're putting those sorts of vibes out there, you definitely come across as creepy. Or the weird thing where she said, never look him in the eye. The the stuff where he was like, oh, at seven o'clock every day is the only time you'll see me. And then that went out the window. Yeah, that's true. Instantly. Yeah. And then he tells her up front every single night at 7 p.m. I'm going to ask you to marry me, which to me just seems like, I don't know. It just seemed very forced. Yeah, I thought that we were going to get a montage at some point of him asking, walking on sunshine in the background or something like that. (laughs) Him holding up a ring every day and her just shaking her head no. (laughs) But he's whittling away at her. Just Um, imagining the manic pixie dream girl version. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I thought there was one um, aspect of the makeup that I thought was very well done. And it was when they're walking in the garden or outside um, and or he hears the deer. And if you watch really closely, the ears actually do perk up on his costume. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. And, you know, at first you're just like, oh, okay, his ears perked up until you realized what year this was and, you know, what kind of things that they had to be able to do some of this stuff. And I all of a sudden was like, oh, that was really cool. So it's something so simple as being alert to the deer and then him like running off to go eat. And I'm assuming it was right after that that his hands were on fire, because I think I wrote that too, that all of a sudden now he's smoking. And it, now I know why, because apparently he, I guess, killed some thing. But there were small, subtle little things like that that I thought were extremely well done. I was wondering whether they'd used, like, if they had dry ice available or anything for that, or whether they had just set something on fire and then put it in his hand. <laughs> like, set something on fire and then extinguished it and put it in his hand. I I mean, it moved more like that than dry ice, I think. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because it didn't yeah. settle the way dry ice settles. No. There was definitely a lot of smoke in that castle. Man, my asthma would have just gone crazy <laughs> in that place. But then you also, so I, I thought you brought an interesting point up that he would, had a lot of a low self-esteem and it kind of pairs to when the father kept calling him sir and he wasn't even good enough to be called sir. He kept yelling at him and saying, I'm beast, I'm beast. But then when she treats him like a beast, he gets all sad, meaning like when she pets his head and he's like, you're petting me like an animal. And so there was, he really is very, very tragic character, but we really don't know the origin of him either. Well, they tell us a little bit, right? His parents didn't believe in spirits, so the spirits turned him into the beast. Oh, that's wow, awful. Talk about having to pay for your parents. <laughs> Sins of the father, baby. <laughs> but yeah, then we don't know how long he's been here or what happened I mean, to his parents either. If they're still alive. I mean, apparently this is a different realm, so to speak. We really have no idea of what his kingdom looks like. Maybe it's just a kingdom of arms and heads. Uh, at the end, where... The beast actually transitions from beast to human. How did you feel about that? Uh, more to more talking story wise rather than like effects wise. I'm curious. That that was weird to me. Again, I guess I can chalk that up to it's a fairy tale. So why not? But I didn't understand if the reason he turned into that person is because he she did at some point love. Um, I can't. How do you pronounce his name? Right. Yeah. So there's a guy who is, I don't know if he's a family friend or what, but he's hanging around the, with the rest of the family. His name's Avanal. And yeah, there was some sort of love, potential love story going on between the two, between him and Belle. And he does sort of have this more Gaston-like role. But he wasn't evil like Gaston was. No, they call him a scoundrel, but beyond just them calling him that, and that he doesn't seem to have anything else to do except hang around. He seems selfish and he's not a bad guy. He's just very greedy and wants mm -hmm. everything for himself. Yeah. And um, which is partly why he gets in the predicament that he's in. But she did. It did seem like if he were to have waited long enough, she probably would have agreed to marry him at some point down the line. Say that not the father never went to the castle. She did say that she loved him. So I wasn't sure if the reason that the beast turned into him was because there is some element of her that loved that person. And so that's why he turned into her. Or if it truly was because he died at the exact moment that the beast died. And so it's like they swapped places. So is it a freaky Friday situation? Yeah. Avenant comes to the castle because he's got the key to the treasure room and he wants to steal all the treasure. And then he gets shot by an arrow and as he dies, he turns into the beast, and then the beast turns back into a human, 
but the human is the exact same actor. Real talk. I thought this was a time travel thing. And like, that's how the beast became the beast. And he was really Avanon the whole time. And then he like Whoa. somehow was going to go back in time because, you know, magic realm and then meet Belle and then win her affection. Because there's that weird moment when Belle and Beast are walking in the garden where he asks her if anyone else had ever asked her to marry them. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, what's the name? He's like, she's like, oh, Avanon. And then he just like has a freak out and runs off. Oh, <laughs> and That's and right. I and I thought I was like, oh, maybe because he's really Avanon. That would and then be there's some yeah. sort of weird time travel thing. But as far as I can tell, that did not happen because he's like, oh, I look like him. I'm not that I am him. That would kind of make sense, too, as to why, you know, he deserves some sort of punishment. If it were, really were that character, we could believe that a little bit more than, yeah, fairy magic. Right. Yeah. So but instead, yeah, you get just, just this weird. Oh, I look like him. Is that OK? Yeah, okay, I guess. Sure, why not? Let's fly, baby. All right. And she was clearly a dummy at that point when they jumped off the ground, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Her body just turned limp. So how did you feel about when Beast becomes de-beastified? Were you like, yay, happy ending or something else? It it didn't really feel like a happy ending. I, I mean, now that you mention it, it, it kind of just felt like, I guess I didn't understand why he was dying. I think it was because he didn't have one of his five magical items or something like that, because that's the source of his power. Well, I, th I thought it was because she hadn't come back. She had delayed so a week to come back. Break. Yeah. So he was literally dying of a broken heart. Okay. And then she comes back and then she, the, the gay, the loving gaze of another or something along those lines is what brings him back to life or breaks the curse. Right. At the same time as the arrow shoots Avanant. So, it seems to be two different things going on here, which is why I kind of like Adam's explanation for it. I do, too. I think that actually that's an interesting. Yeah, well, that's not the turn. way it actually happens in the thing. So, I know. You know Jean Cocteau, like, call me. <laughs> I realize I realize you've been dead for quite a while and your movies like over 60 years old, 70 years old. Oh, my gosh, 70 years old. But, you know, call me. Yeah. We can fix this. Have the Ouija board at the Time ready. <laughs> I mean, it is a happy ending because she gets to fly off into this kingdom, but the kingdom that she has no idea where this is or what's going on. She just randomly gets thrown into this ethereal kingdom away from her crazy evil family, I guess. But their family really wasn't evil. So it wasn't like, I don't know, it kind of, I guess it was just strange. Part of the reason I ask is that there's a famous story that I've seen attributed to both Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich, which is when they watched the premiere of the movie in the theater. And he transforms from beast into human. They famously yelled out, give me back my beast. <laughs> and, and I wondered if you had a similar reaction or not. I had a similar reaction. And I was in the course of my research, I found that John Cocteau had said that he did that on purpose because uh, the idea was that by having him transform into Avenant, that you would kind of feel this loss, like she had lost the more interesting aspects of who he was and was going to be in a sort of boring standard relationship from now on, which is crazy. Yeah. Subverting the idea of happy endings actually being happy endings. Cause I saw that too, right. Where he says something about to the effect of like, Oh, Hey, she gets to go have many kids now. How wonderful. for her! <laughs> I mean, I think it is still kind of a happy ending because she gets to be with a person she loved. Cause he asks her, did you love him? And she said, yes. 
well, do you love the beast? And she said, yes. And so it was kind of like, well, if you love both of them, now you get the both, right? So it's like the best of both worlds. And so it's, but in my mind, I'm like, but if I wanted him, I would have married him. She's the original furry. (laughs) (laughs) And in that time, yeah, if she were, she would be getting married and she gets to be a princess and have lots of children in this randomly weird realm. And it also makes you wonder what, if he turned into that, you know, into a human because she's human, but it makes you wonder what was he originally? He was turned into this beast, but what did he look like before? He just decided, the universe decided to make him look like this other weirdo? Like, yeah, they had to swap him. They didn't have enough money to make to get another actor? I'm sure it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> Murray insisted his face be seen for a majority of the film. <laughs> All right, fine. I guess we'll cast you this other role yeah. as well. I'll put on a mask, but my face has got to be somewhere else. (laughs) I thought it was also interesting that they really did look different. It took me a bit to realize that they were the same character. Yeah. Or the same actor. But I realized that the other guy had like, what? Did he have brown hair? Was it like a brown versus blonde thing? Or was it just because he was nicely made up? Long versus short, I think. Like Avanat had the sort of longer shoulder length hair. And maybe the prince did, but it would have been pulled back or something. Yeah, it looks like the hair is... That looks short. Yeah, it looks like the beast or human beast, whatever we call him. Looks like he has short hair. Yeah, I guess we don't. I don't know if we know he's a prince or not. Well, he's the ruler of a magical flying kingdom or something, right? Oh, okay, yeah. You weirdly go and they start making out in the clouds. <laughs> and then what? Right? We're meant to ask ourselves. <laughs> so, um, Brandy had also mentioned, I think, before we started recording about the sort of interesting musical choices that were made. I thought there was a lot of really beautiful music in general, but I thought they were interestingly placed in some moments in this movie. There was like one that that really stuck out to me was when the father is kind of exploring the castle and he's trying to see if there's anybody else there. Cause at this point he thinks he's alone. It's very dramatic, like, and not dramatic in like a, Ooh, suspenseful, like almost like an action hero. Like it seemed almost like there was like a fight, like a song you would hear in a fight sequence or some sort of very heavily acted scene. And he's just looking around trying to find someone. It was a very weird choice, I think, for that moment. But then there are other moments that the music is gorgeous, um, especially the ethereal side of like the castle and whatnot. I just felt like that some of the choices there were inconsistent. The, that exact same moment that thought occurred to me, too, is when he was exploring the castle. And I think he went out on either one of the walls or where there were a bunch of statues. And it was, this, yeah, this very swelling sort of orchestral score, very loud. And it didn't really seem to match. And I... The question is whether that, I'm sure that was on purpose. And the question is, do you think it worked or not? So it's not the traditional way you would use scoring like that at all. I think it was more, oh, that was weird. Instead of anything else, I don't really know if it portrayed what the feel of that scene was supposed to be. Yeah, I agree with you. So an interesting thing that composer Philip Glass did with this movie is that he actually made his own score to it, including like sort of operatic vocals to, to match up with the entire film. Uh, so that's something that exists on the Criterion Blu-ray. I wasn't able to uh, actually listen to the whole thing myself, but I watched some of it online, and it's actually really good. I mean, I guess that's not a complete surprise, but if I ever watched this film again, that's the way I would do it. I liked his scoring a lot more than the actual scoring that was that was done. So do they have a cut on the Criterion where you can watch it with his score instead? Yep. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't really have much to add to that other than then noting that this is uh, the second part of a trilogy of Cocteau films that Philip Glass did operas for. The first one he did was uh, based on 
the movie Orpheus. And I just want to mention that one of the lead roles in the world premiere of Glass's opera version of Orphe uh, was Richard Fracker, who I later studied with. So, oh, no kidding. Wow. So there's like a degree of separation between me and Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than I got, as far as I know. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't even mm-hmm. dawn on me that that was paired with like this one being a part of that same series. Yeah, so they he, they did uh, Glass did Orpheus, and then this one, and then uh, La Femme Terrible, I think, something like that. Uh, this, yeah, it's one of the really fascinating things about watching older movies like this is that, I mean, like this and A Trip to the Moon, where somebody's actually decided to produce a completely different score or a completely different way to watch the film, and and it becomes its own art. I would actually love to rewatch this movie that way. And hopefully I'll get a chance to do that sometime soon. I'm sure I will do it during one of Brianne's many rehearsal nights when mm. she's off doing <laughs> shows and I'm not. Um, so yeah, it, as we've described a very different film than the Disney versions we got later, do you have, I guess it's hard to say whether you have a preference, but I think for me, I, while I appreciate what Disney's trying to do, I also have a place in my heart for things that are closer to the original. It's just so interesting to see for me where things have come from. So a couple of things, Disney likes to do that. Perfect example for me is like the Hunchback of Notre Dame where everybody lives and that is not the case um, from the original source material. Mm -hmm. But like the stage production, for example, follows the source material more than it does the Disney movie. So Disney likes to make everything's family friendly when a lot of it, isn't a lot of the original stories are very dark i think little mermaid's another one that it does that with with um because every time she would walk in the original story the little mermaid would feel like she was stepping on shards of glass every time she would walk and it was so horribly painful that she couldn't bear it for much longer Hmm. but in disney ah yay she just you know yay she can walk (laughs) um and with this one i didn't feel like it was much darker i just felt it was more dramatic and i liked it i i uh, some of the stuff that I also thought was interesting was where his quote unquote source of power came from. Cause in this, the beast is magic where the beast does not have magic in the Disney stuff, but he gets his powers from five special items in which some of these actually do come up in the Disney. So you get the rose, the mirror, the glove, the key, um, and the horse. And if he doesn't, Magnifique, Magnifique which was beautiful by the way, <laughs> yeah. that horse was gorgeous. Yeah. I could tell that was a dancing horse. Um, like trained and, the rose and the mirror and actually the horse all show up again in the Disney version as well. But all of those five items apparently are what he needs all of those items with him to be able to have the source of his power or something along those lines. And I thought that was just, I don't know how if I liked that more or less than the Disney version, but I felt that to be a little abstract for my liking. Yeah. It's, it's almost, yeah, an unfair question I've posed because of course, now going back, I'm going to say that this is the version I like better. But as a kid, I don't know because Adam was also mentioning that this that this film made it onto someone's list of the British Film Institute BFI list of the 50 films you should see by the age of 14, compiled in 2005. But it's hard for me to see this one as a. I guess it is a kids' movie, but it's just the feeling you get while watching it is very different than you get from a Disney film. Well, for for what it's worth, both versions of Beauty and the Beast, both the cartoon and this, are on the ah, list. Yes. So you don't have to choose. So if you had made me watch both of these as a kid, I definitely would have said the Disney version. But now I'm going to go with the older version. So, yeah, 
I don't know. They're, they're, yeah, they're both unique in their own ways and try to do very different things. But another element of this that I felt I really liked, um, you know, versus the Disney ones is that I can appreciate what those effects that they're doing are as well. Like I'm old enough now to understand the artistic value of this film or even some small little sleight of hand things like, you know, with the necklace, when they throw it on the ground and it magically turns into the, you know, it's a weed and then it's a necklace. Um, while they're very simple effects, they're also very beautifully done. The the hands and the candelabras and the smoking everywhere, like all of those little things, the gliding of her walking, I thought I really enjoy with this and I love what they were trying to do. Sometimes I feel like the versions of Beauty and the Beast are just very formulaic um, that we see nowadays. Um, I felt like this one just embraced that enchantment, embraced the fairy tale and was able to demonstrate that very well. So, Brianne, what do you think of the movie overall? Is this something you would recommend to other people? If so, you know, what type of moviegoer would really appreciate this? Um, I would definitely recommend this. And I think everyone can appreciate this movie. I really think someone who is a fan of classic movies, classic theater even, um, are going to appreciate the cinematography of this movie a little bit more. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a kid's film. Um, I don't know if I would have gotten or understood it uh, when I was a kid, but I would say that I would recommend this. I think a lot, I think everyone should see this, especially if you're going out and you're seeing the Disney version, and you think that that's the way the story goes. I think it's good. Challenge the thought of, you know, what you're thinking about uh, these different fairy tales that we're seeing out there. Yeah. I have a suspicion that this is another one of those movies that gets better with repeated viewings. Cause the first time I watched it, I was like, Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that was fine, but I, I have questions. <laughs> we've actually we've answered some of those questions by doing this so that that's good so i think just by watching more and being more familiar and just going oh okay i get it now i made that connection i see what they're doing now you know i think that would be i think that would help so yeah i think people should watch this movie but i think maybe they should plan on watching it more than once maybe not like not like back to back but you know a movie that potentially one should revisit of all the movies we've done on the show so far, surprisingly, the one that this reminds me the most of is The Elephant Man, which was an episode that we did with you, Brianne. And I wonder, like, I'm having trouble putting into words exactly why that is. I guess just a lot of the sort of, like, production design and movie techniques designed to make you feel a certain way without explicitly stating what it is they're trying to do. I, I don't know. I just got, and the sort of weird ethereal castle scenes reminded me a lot of some of the dream sequences that were in the elephant man so i just thought that was really weird but um yeah i actually enjoyed this a lot i'm glad that you brought this here brand because i'm not i'm not sure it's something that i would have ever thought to go watch myself i would have assumed that like oh yeah it's got good production value for the time and it's just basically like a kid's story which it is but yeah, there's just a lot more here than i i expected so i definitely recommend it to Basically anyone, and I, I agree with you, Adam. If you have the opportunity, it'd probably be a good idea to watch it more than once. So, Brianne, you have watched a movie that we thought you should watch or that you've been meaning to watch. Uh, now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think they should experience. Um, well, I think I'm going to go with kind of a, along that same fairy tale um, line, but something that, again, was kind of gone from a stage or a theater production to the film. I'm going to suggest... Um, the movie Into the Woods. I think that it's kind of a conglomeration of a whole bunch of fairy tales, but also... Like the one that just came out recently with Meryl Streep? Yes, the one with Meryl mm. Streep. Not the stage 
to video production, which is also a good film, but I, I think I'm, I'm gearing people more towards mainstream, but I, it was kind of, it was, it's a great movie with the musical aspect to it. Um, kind of turns a lot of fairy tales on their heads. Um, a lot of really strong performances, a lot of great voices. Um, it's just a fun movie. Uh, Meryl Streep, Johnny Depp, uh, James Corden, uh, Anna Kendrick, uh, Chris Pine, um, a lot of big names that uh, some people that we didn't necessarily know could sing and or uh, Emily Blunt. I feel like there was a great portrayal of what the, the stage production was. And it really does flip those story, um, those fairy tales on their heads. So don't they cut out like half the second act in the movie? I think they do. Um, I mean, if you really want them, if you're wanting more of the musical, then yes, watch the um, musical with Bernadette Peters um, on, on that production, because that one's going to show you the entire musical. And, and that is more what I fell in love with when I was a kid. But when they're going for actual theatrical releases, um, I would say then watch the movie version um, of Into the Woods as well. So this episode, uh, when I was going down the rabbit hole of the research of this film, I was looking, I looked at the cinematographer and other things he had done in a movie that surprised me to hear that he was involved in was uh, the 1987 Vim Vendor's film, Wings of Desire, which I just saw, I think, in the last year. And when I read that, I was like, of course, like the sort of very, again, I use the word ethereal feel that you have in this film, you get, again, 40 years later in this completely separate style of film, but uh, just a sort of use of cinematography to tell a story that I would definitely recommend it. It's got Peter Falk in it and probably one of the more amusing roles I've ever seen him in. And it's the story that City of Angels is based off of. So if you like City of Angels, that doesn't say anything about whether you like Wings of Desire, but <laughs> watch it anyway. City of Angels, the Meg Ryan yep. Nick Cage movie? Yep. So this okay. one's about an angel who uh, decides he doesn't want to be an angel anymore because he doesn't want to watch humanity. He wants to experience it and goes after this lady. All right. So a stirring recommendation <laughs> to watch City of Angels. <laughs> well, you, for the context of the movie that came before, you should watch City of Angels first. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm going to recommend a movie that it feels like a fairy tale in some ways. Uh, although it's not itself based on a fairy tale. But it also has a bit of a time travel aspect that this movie should have had. So just sort of tie in <laughs> some of my stuff here. And so I'm going to recommend the 2016 Japanese film, Your Name. Oh, I've still been meaning to see that. Like I haven't found a good way to watch it yet. It is excellent. I recommend it. Probably one of my favorite movies of 2016, honestly. So, Brianne, thank you very much for being on the show. So what stage productions are you in right now? Anything that we can go and watch if we're in the Phoenix area? Uh, yes, I am in a musical called uh, Disaster, which is uh, playing at Desert Stages Theater in Scottsdale, Arizona. It runs from January 11th to February 9th, I believe. And anyway, so it's a musical based off of 1970s disaster movies. It's basically a casino that everyone that ends up getting in an earthquake and tidal waves and fires and explosions <laughs> and anything and everything that can happen to this thing does. And it's called a jukebox musical, which means that there's a whole bunch of just 70s popular music from that time um, inserted in randomly weird ways. It is. And it's a parody, right? It is. It's a parody. Um, it's more like a farce. It's ridiculously stupid and funny and it if you're in the scottsdale area beginning of next year 
I suggest coming out and having a good time with us. So Adam, I hear you have another podcast that you participate in. (laughs) 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 Why, yes, Charlie, I do. Thank you. Uh, If you haven't already, check out the Gabeski Wallace Report. I assume you already have because you listen to Charlie. But we talk about Marvel movies and other things. www.gabeskiwallacereport.com And at this point, we have, what did we just got through? Ghost Rider, didn't we? Yeah, Spider-Man 3 next, as far as recording times go. I'm not sure how that's going to work vis-a-vis release dates. But by the time you hear this, it'll probably be Ghost Rider, I'm thinking. Yeah. Assuming you listen to this when it comes out. But they're podcasts, so the episodes are all up no matter what. So you can go and listen to whatever episode you like. Uh, and as for us, make sure to uh, check out our website, uh, cinematicrespect.com. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can do it really easily from there, from the homepage. Uh, and check out what else we're doing on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Still haven't Boo! deleted it. Still haven't Boo! deleted it. I am updating some of those ratings, Adam. <laughs> have you Star Trek Beyond yet? That was the other one I was angry about. I don't think that one's... I'm not sure that one's a misrating. Like, I may need to watch it again. Five out of ten. What is wrong with you? <laughs> it's out of... It's two and a half out of five. Right. Five out of ten. <laughs> You're straight up wrong here. I will clockwork orange you until your rating changes. <laughs> Car and I burst out laughing when that goose or the uh, swan started attacking him. Yes. (laughs) Like, there's no way that was intentional, but that was great. I'm like, yeah, they're jerks. Angry birds. (laughs) 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 At Bell. I should have brought that up in the happy ending. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Goose wasn't happy. Still loved. So they get in the car or they're, they're, you know, holding the cart as they're running and they're drunk. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I said is, are they drunk driving? I thought they were all hung over because they're all like sleeping and getting up and like kind of stumbling around. And I'm like, Ugh, I can't, I told Cara, I couldn't think of, I couldn't think of anything worse than like either being drunk or hung over and having to lift somebody up in a cart and like carry them across town. Well, it makes it funny. Well, is that carry they- him right back. Cause they didnn't let him into the party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We could totes hear them inside. They were laughing it up. (laughs) Nobody here. Oh, man.